This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and the plot holes of your favorite porn. I'm your co-host, Alice Vaughn. And I'm Yvette Dantrema, aka Cybabe. And today we happen to have a guest on our show, so Yvette, technically... This is our first threesome. Oh, I'm so excited about this. I mean, and many more to come for over the years. Uh-oh. Our guest today is Ella Darling, and Ella happens to be a woman cut from our own cloth. She got her master's in science in library and information science, as well as her bachelor's by the time she was 21. She's also a Slytherin, plays Dungeons and Dragons, and currently chief marketing officer at PVR. She also, and one of the reasons we're having her on this show, aside from, she's awesome, uh, she also co-founded VRTube XXX, which w- was one of the companies, as far as virtual reality goes, in the cam space. Uh, so Ella, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to, it's so nice to get to know both of you, and it's a pleasure to be on your show. You came highly recommended for this, not like not just because of the work you do, the fact that you're a, a wonderful businesswoman, but because all of our mutual friends have told me that you're so gosh darned nice. So, Aw, that's really nice. It's, but yeah, it's. I mean, is that the training from librarian work coming back to influence the rest of your life? Librarians, nice. Yeah, librarians are awesome. I am so... Just, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to be a librarian, and I miss it so much, and I don't know if I'm ever going to do it again, but if you don't realize how awesome your local librarian is, like, go to the library and just, like, just talk to them, because they're amazing, and they fight for your, like, your intellectual freedom so hard. Librarians have, like, have gone to jail fighting for people's right to access information. Yeah. It's awesome. It's so punk rock. It's, I mean, this, this probably uh, means you know really well how to find accurate information too, which I, which I love. Yes. A big part of what I did was, um, so I was the associate director of a library and I was also the head of reference. And so I would answer just trivia all day long. And I wouldn't know if someone was, you know, writing some, some crazy thesis or just trying to solve the New York Times crossword puzzle sometimes, but no matter what, the, the questions that I would get were always so exciting. And just like the journey to find the answers that people would ask was was just exciting and wonderful. I love that. I love that so much. Alice, what do you think? So I do trivia. So if uh, I'm ever back in your area, as a reference librarian, I definitely want you on my team. <laughs> and I happened to watch a few of your videos. And I caught where you said uh, in one of them that, and please let me know if this is true or you, if you were just joking, that if someone shows you their library card, you'll show them your tits. <gasps> yeah, I totally did that at AVN one year. Um, and I got a lot of library cards. <laughs> I, I'm shocked that people somehow found it in them and they're like, what? Yeah, th- this is all I have to do. I, I've got, I have an 18 year old library card. I can find it. Yeah. And actually there were people that went to their library and got library cards um, I mean, I assume not just to see my tits because spoiler <laughs> alert, you can Google it pretty easily. Um, but yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I, I could imagine. I think about this. You're also promoting literacy. Absolutely. It's very important. I love it. So yeah, yeah, they did. They actually got their library card. And it's really, you know, it's really important for libraries to have 
more people in the community sign up for a card and to even just walking in the door is part of the metrics that they have to keep keep track of and it can impact their funding. So oh, wow. anything you do with the library, even if you don't check out a single book, just walking in the door and having your card, um, having interactions, like I had to keep track of how many reference uh, interviews or discussions that I had every day, like everything you do goes into their metrics and helps them. Nice. Yeah. It's, I, when I was, when I was just out of uh, grad school, I couldn't afford, like I could barely afford my life. Uh, and there was a library literally two blocks away from me. It was what I went to for my internet for everything. Uh, and it's, it's, it was an amazingly wonderful resource right on the beach in uh, in Atlantic City. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, everyone else go to the clubs. I'm like, BRB, head into the library. <laughs> People, I think, uh, are very quick to underestimate the value of libraries today because the internet, because internet access is so pervasive. But the, the services provided at libraries are huge. Like, I had events at my library where, so I was in a small town, a small blue collar town in Massachusetts. And I had a week where every day I had a new program. I'm from I'm from Massachusetts too. I want to know which town. Where in Massachusetts? Uh, I was born in Newburyport. Uh, lived in Woburn and Gloucester at different points in time. I went to college in Boston. Okay, so I was at a library outside of Boston, and I had job programming. And every day, I would give people like some tasks to come in and we would uh, teach them how to interview, teach them how to sign up for job sites, uh, fix their resumes for them. And at the end of two weeks after that week of programming, 100% of those people had jobs. Oh, damn. So don't fucking tell me that libraries aren't relevant today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first I'm just curious, and we talked about this a little before going on. Uh, what was, what was the thing that, that brought on the switch from, uh, from library science, something that you're really passionate about and still are to, to working in the industry? Well, let me tell you my tale. I, as was mentioned, I got my master's degree when I was 21. So I was taking a fuckload of classes. I graduated a year early, both from undergrad and from grad school. So I was taking just a lot of coursework and I was working at the time also. So I had no free time and every moment of my day was scheduled. And then I graduated and then I got, you know, my first job out of, out of grad school, which was the associate director and head of reference of a small library. Because of certain union laws, like full time at that library and in that system was 35 hours a week. So I went from having like no time to myself to suddenly having all of this free time. And I had just gotten out of a kind of sucky relationship. I had been modeling since I was 18 or so. And I had never done anything even as risque as like a lingerie photo shoot at this point. But one day I was on Craigslist just looking at gigs and I saw an ad for a fetish site and it was fully clothed girls in inescapable bondage. So hardcore bondage, softcore porn. And I wasn't even sure at the time, like, is it porn? It is. It was. But that was sort of a, a soft step that I thought, you know what? Fuck it. Like I had some pretty nasty preconceived ideas about porn performers and the porn industry. I was very ill-informed. And one day I realized like, you know, if, if what I think the industry is like, and if what I think porn performers are like is true, then why? Like, I thought they were victims. I thought they were coerced. I thought they were forced into porn. And I was like, well, if that's the case. Why do they all seem so fucking happy? So maybe I'm wrong. So I decided to explore it. And I, I went to this shoot. I expected it to be awful. I expected the director to be, you know, really skeezy. And <laughs> it was so pleasant. He was this super smart ex-goth, really into like indie film and poetry. He showed me like, uh, this is your space. This is a green room. There will never be any cameras in here. You can feel comfortable here. He walked me through everything. He gave me safe words. He made sure that every step of the way I knew what was happening. I could anticipate what we were doing and I felt good. And I made more in an hour than 
and I made it in a whole day at the job I had to get a master's degree to do. And uh, I thought it was pretty fun. So I did some more fetish stuff. I did my first nude photo shoot. Then I started doing some nude fetish stuff. And I realized like I'm making so much more money doing this than I do for my like entire library career. If I want to do this... I should just move to LA because that's where this industry really lives. Like if this is what I'm making in, you know, South Boston, if I move to LA, I can really do the hell out of it. So I moved to LA. I finished a year at the library and then I moved to LA to do porn and to get married. And one of those was a super, super, super awesome idea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. So yeah. So I moved to LA and I started doing lesbian porn. Um, so I would do, I did a lot of like hardcore fetish, um, and bondage stuff. So my first shoot, my first like hardcore shoot was for a site called kink.com there. Oh, I thought kink.com. Sorry. <laughs> no, they're great. They're really great to work for. In, in my experience, I've shot, I've done a lot of scenes for them about four and a half years into my career. I was browsing Reddit one day. And I saw someone post about how they wanted to make VR porn, but they didn't know how to find a performer for it. And I was very interested in VR. You know, I checked it out at E3. I knew it was going to be huge for porn. I knew that it would be so awesome to watch and make and experience pornography in that medium. But I didn't have the tech background. I didn't have the experience to to do anything like that. So I figured, you know, eventually someone's going to do it. And maybe in like four years, I'll actually get booked on a fucking scene because I'm not like, I'm not some big superstar, you know? Um, And so when I saw that, I was like, hell yes, uh, let's do this. Let's work together. So I messaged them and a few months later, I was flown out to the East Coast, to D.C., to shoot in Southern Maryland. That was the beginning of my experience in VR and in VR porn. And it was so fucking weird and so surreal and awesome. I, uh, I, met, the person, I met this person at the train station. And when I saw him, I was certain that there was a mistake because I wasn't even sure if he was old enough to make porn or watch porn. And I was like, okay, you're very, very young. This is strange. But quickly I was assured that he is actually, it's fine. He was 20 years old, but still, holy shit, a 20 year old. And so I was like, okay, cool. Awesome. You're of age. That's all, that's all I really care about. So um, we get on the train and we go to the shoot. And I asked him, you know, are we shooting at a studio or is it like someone's house? Because in porn, it's very, very common to shoot in people's houses and in people's homes. A lot of people shoot just out of their own house or they have a studio in their house. It's not alarming is what I'm saying. If someone's like, oh yeah, we're shooting in my home. That's fairly typical. So when he said, oh yeah, it's my apartment. I thought, oh, it's your apartment. I didn't realize it was his college dorm And his roommates had no idea he had flown out a porn star from Los Angeles to shoot pornography. In fact, they didn't know that he was doing anything in pornography in the first place. One of them just thought he was really depressed. Oh my god! It was like weird science. (laughs) I feel like this is a 20-year-old's fantasy. Oh my god. So I can just tell this woman I'm a porn performer and she'll come and fuck me in my dorm room? Ah. He wasn't performing. He was just producing. So um, it was just a solo scene. And I was like, look, you're paying me my my day rate to do a solo scene. You're flying me out to DC. My best friend lives out there. So like, it's a free trip to see my friend. If nothing, like if the shoot sucks, it sucks, like whatever. Um, but it didn't. It was wonderful. And so I go, his his roommates are playing D&D. 
when I get there. It's I'm so all about it because I've been playing D and D since I was like 13. I'm not laughing at them for because out of out of picking on people who play D and I'm just like, wow, this is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and so I'm like, oh hey, what what edition are you guys playing? And they're just like having none of it. They they don't even engage with me. I'm like, oh okay, uh, I guess I'm just gonna go in here then. And so I go to uh, his bedroom, which is where the camera is going to be set up, yeah. and. I'm still amused that, you know, it's like, oh, a beautiful woman wants to engage us about D&D. Ignore yeah, her. It's, Go, no, don't, don't talk to her. I, I, you're, you're a scary person because you had threatening tits <laughs> or something. I mean, I was 27 and they were all like 19 or 20. And I, this oh. was, this was in, you know, in Maryland at a college and I'm a porn star from Los Angeles, so the way I dress is a little eccentric. I, I don't look like the kind of person that they're probably accustomed to seeing. And so... But still, there's something to be said for not being impolite. Yeah, yeah, it was strange. Um, so anyway, I go, I put down my stuff, I come back out, and they are gone. Just instantly. Like, you guys <laughs> didn't even, you didn't even, you know, sort out, like, XP? Okay, cool. Not how I play, but whatever. So, uh, so yeah. So I'm in his bedroom now, and he shows me the camera. It's a 180 degree 3D camera, and he has it mounted on the wall. And he said, "Okay, so because it's 180 degrees, it's and it's on the wall. It's going to get the entire room. So we can't like it was him and his his friend who were doing this. And he was like, we can't like no one can be in here to direct you because then we would be caught on camera. And um, you know, this is just a solo scene. I want you to know, like, we don't we're not trying to do anything we we understand you're like that's not what we're, we're here for like they weren't trying to fuck me but I kind of just had to get in there and make a porno and I didn't like I didn't know anything like I'd never done this before so I was like okay well I guess I'm just gonna wing it and so I just talked to the camera like like I was camming like I treated it like a webcam session I just looked into the camera like it was someone I wanted to fuck and I stripped and I masturbated and then you know that was a scene it was a partnerless scene yes Yes, yes. Um, and I was wearing like a little R2-D2 swimsuit and like thigh-high socks and it was fucking adorable. And so we wrap up, we do paperwork, and then I... Just, just FYI, I'm sure that video of you and R2-D2 uh, socks is going to be like the most Googled thing from all of our <laughs> listeners. So um, get some new fans. Heck yeah, it was really fun. I don't I don't even think it's available anymore, but, but that's okay. So that was that. And then after the shoot, I really got to know this person. And he and I had very, very little in common in terms of like skills. We had a lot of like, like we were interested in some of the same stuff, but there was no overlap in terms of skills. And I knew a lot about the adult industry and he knew all of the tech stuff. So he asked me to be his business partner. And that was, you know, the start of VRTube.XXX. And so we started off doing 3D, 180 degree video, which is pretty common. Then we switched to doing 3D, 360 degree video, which is not as common in the adult space. And it's, oh man, it was such a bitch back then because this was early on. There weren't really, there weren't really a lot of accessible VR cameras, if any at all. So I had to take 12 GoPros and basically strap them all together and start them all at the same time and sync them and inevitably by the end of a scene like three or four of them would have shut off or overheated so yeah. like it, I would lose scenes so anyway so yeah I, I became the director basically I would I would shoot scenes with my friends and I would hire my friends in LA to, to do VR porn but we have this trend of trying something and then quickly pivoting 
and just iterating really quickly. So it was really obvious. We were one of the first VR porn companies, but it was pretty obvious that this was going to be cool, that other porn companies were going to want to do it, and that when they did, they were going to do exactly what we were doing. And a company of two people is going to find it really hard to compete with a company that's got millions or billions of dollars. So we we decided that we wanted to pivot to something that was less accessible with a higher barrier of entry. And so we started doing, we did the first ever holographic capture porn for for VR. So basically we would take a time of flight depth camera. I would set the capture space on three axes. So I'd set the X, Y, and Z axes and basically establish where where the camera is going to capture and it would ignore everything outside of that space. So I would put a performer on a platform and it would just capture their body in space. And then I would be able to place that holographic capture into a digitally rendered environment later. And that's what we launched with, these holographic captures. And it was really cool. Like it really felt like you were in the room with this person it felt like they were looking at you and then we used that technology to create a dating simulator and I remember we were at his college like I was visiting him at his college again at University University of Maryland and there was this room that was just like all whiteboards and like a ball pit it was just this really cool creative space and we sketched out this entire conversation tree for the dating simulator and so the way it works is you would open it and I would be sitting in front of you in a digitally rendered cafe and I would introduce myself and I'm photorealistic in a digitally rendered cafe so it looks kind of like I'm in a video game but I look very very much like myself. There's, there's no um, Uncanny Valley happening. Yeah, very, very, very little, um, if at all. So yeah, I would introduce myself and then you would have options. You would have like four options of what you can say to me. And then I would respond to that and then you'd have more options. And it would assign invisible point values. So if you say something polite and nice, you get, let's say like 10 points. If you say something really sexual, you lose 30 points or you you have to have at least so many points before saying that sexual thing isn't going to make me just be like, oh, fucking later. Um, so it's kind of a social learning wow. tool. I kind of love this because, you know, men who sometimes just are way too aggressive in real life. It's like, oh, just another yeah. way for them to get rejected. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, dude, this is feminist camming, basically. Yeah. And so um, so it was all pre-recorded, and it was really neat. And so when we watched it, when we, when we played it, like it was very, it was very basic. It was very early days, but it was so cool. And it felt like you were really sitting there talking to a person. And so we were sort of at a crossroads. Like we either, we can make a bunch of these for a bunch of performers and we just have to create like an exhaustive list of things that people might say until we can eventually, you know, incorporate AI into it in some way. Or we can take the really valuable aspect of it, which is that it feels like you're really talking to someone in VR and do that. And so that's what we did. And that's when we formed um, VRTube Live, which was the first live webcam platform in virtual reality. So I am the world's first VR cam girl. And so we launched that. And then I would do weekly cam shows there. And the way that worked was basically I was on a green screen and we had a camera. We always have made our own cameras, whether we were strapping together GoPros or like building them by hand. So we would, we made our camera and we would have it, you know, pointed at me and I'd be on the green screen and then I'd be keyed into like this really beautiful, idyllic outdoor space. And it was cool. And I had returning customers and I had like, people were so nice to me. I realized like in VR, people were so nice and they would get attached very quickly. 
exactly. The sort of the milestones that you reach as a cam performer where you reach certain levels of self-disclosure, both on your part and on the part of your your viewers that take, you know, you kind of understand it's going to take maybe this many sessions or this amount of time before they get to the point where they're like, you know, asking me about like my dog and recounting stories that I told them last time I saw them. But in VR, it would happen so rapidly where they would feel so close to me so quickly. I had one guy who like he had just gotten broken up with and he really wanted to be someplace he felt safe with someone he felt he could trust. And for him, that was me. That was in this space in virtual reality. Like when he was feeling his worst, this was the place that he felt best. And I was someone he felt very close to that he could trust. And he'd only seen me maybe one or two times before that. So the fact that he felt that, like that was just wild to me so yeah so that's what there have to be a few different things psychologically that feed into why people feel more connected to you more quickly in vr porn do you think it has something to do with the fact that you feel like you're there more yeah i think it has a lot to do with the sense of presence that you have you feel transported and you feel a very intimate connection with the person you're talking to you're not just watching you know a person on a screen you really feel like you've got this person right in front of you so i think that has a lot to do with it i think you know, the next iteration of what we did, instead of the green screen, we just created a 3D 360 photo sphere of the space. So with the next iteration, you actually felt like you were in my bedroom with me. Like you could look around and see like nerdy Star Trek art and skulls. And there's a weird mannequin that's been shot with like a shotgun. And you get a sense that like, oh, I kind of know who this person is. You can start to tell the story of your persona by the way that you style the space that you're in. My bedroom speaks for me before I even say anything about myself. And yeah, like when you feel like you're in someone's house, you're less inclined to to be shitty to them. Like you don't insult someone in their own house, typically. Like most people feel weird about that. And so the more in my space they felt, the nicer they were. And they would police other people in, in the chat room also. If someone was being an asshole, they'd be like, dude, you can't talk to her like that. And it was amazing to me. And so yeah, so we we made that that second version of the CAM platform, we licensed to a site called CAM4. So we created CAM4 VR, and I was the, the head and the face of CAM4 VR. And that lasted until early this year. Our license with them expired, and we've decided to close that company altogether and move out of the adult space. So we basically went back to the drawing board. We reworked everything. We redid everything, started from the ground up. And we're now getting ready. The same, my business partner, Brendan and I, we're about to launch a new non-adult broadcast platform. It's going to be called Gonzo VR, which sounds like porn, but it's just my dog's name. It's named after (laughs) my dog. Um, And so that's sort of the journey from librarian to porn to VR porn and now I'm I'm the chief marketing officer of an adult VR headset company called PVR and it's really cool I'd love to talk about that in a little bit and yeah and now I'm doing this this live broadcasting business that is going to be for for anyone for influencers for celebrities for podcasters for anybody with an audience who wants to connect with them and so that is my story. That is awesome. Um, So my first question is actually, so how many people are actually doing what you used to do, which is interactive um, cam VR? Is this a prolific market? Is is it just a, a handful of people still doing it or just not at all? There have only been a couple of other companies that have entered the adult like VR cam space at all. And nobody's really doing it the way that we did it. Cam4 is... I believe going to be launching Cam4 VR soon. I believe that that's something that they've announced. They're relaunching it, so they're they're not using our 
our setup anymore. So they're sort of designing a new thing. So this will be available soon, but I don't even, I don't really think anyone is doing anything like that right now. There's one site that does like, like a 360 2D camera, but I didn't really consider 2D to be virtual reality. And yeah, so there's just, it was kind of just us. I, I think the moral of the story here is that librarians are underpaid. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they certainly are. So I I mean, part of what I got out of your story is I, you know, instead of Xanax, I just need to get fucked more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I recommend it. But in all seriousness, so um, you definitely talked about some of the camera challenges you had in VR. So I noticed that when I was looking at a lot of VR porn, it was definitely geared towards men as porn generally is. You know, I mean, I'm kind of... I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that, I don't know, maybe like Manuel Ferreira will like have an experience for just me one day. Um, <laughs> but uh, th- that said, you know, do is there any VR currently being made geared towards women? Because I don't really see any. There is some. Um, I think there are several companies that will make, you know, a, a scene here and there. I don't it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing. So no, like people aren't going to make porn for a consumer base that they don't think is there. And the consumer base isn't going to be there if you're not giving them something that, you know, is made for them. But there are some companies that do stuff that's geared towards women. I haven't really explored it all that much. It's really hard for me to watch porn because I'll be watching it and then I'll be like, oh, wait, I've, I've fucked in that house before. <laughs> I know where you're at. Oh, or, man. There's like, there's like maybe six or seven like mansions in Los Angeles where most porn is filmed. So like you can you can really tell if you watch the bathrooms. As soon as they recognize like, oh yeah, I've been in that house. Then I just start thinking about work. Or if I'm watching someone and I know them, I have no qualms jerking off to someone I know. Like I don't think there's any problem with that. If you're doing that and they're not porn stars, keep it to yourself. If you're doing that and they are porn stars, (laughs) keep it to yourself. Like I'm sure my friends jerk off, jerk off to my porn. I don't need to fucking know it. I didn't ask. So don't tell me. Like, it's very, it's, it's uncomfortable for me. Like, you can say you like my work, but I do not need to know. And I don't need to know which of my friends you jerk off to. Oh, it's just so strange. But oh. anyway, so yeah, or I'll, I'll be watching porn. And it's like, oh, you're my friend. Oh, I can tell that you're not having fun right now because I know that you don't like that. Because I know you. Or... <laughs> That has to, that yeah, or like, oh, hell yeah, you're having fun. Good for you. And now I'm just like, oh, go team friend, not let's jerk off. I'm just thinking about like, oh, I'm, I wonder how she's doing. wonder what she's up to. And it's just like, it's not conducive to, to masturbation for me. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, even with my best friends, I mean, I can't imagine ever saying, oh, how you doing? Oh, I'm just gonna um, touch myself right now. You know, can we FaceTime? And yeah, no, it's never, never crossed my mind to you know contact Yvette and say hey you know uh feeling diddling right now it's about like three o'clock so <laughs> but why wow. not I'm waiting for that phone call Alice. Oh I'm God. waiting I, I yeah <laughs> I, I had kind of similar-ish experience I I had friends that I'd known for a few years and randomly stumbled into a, a video of a porn of them and I'm like I didn't even know they worked in porn <laughs> so it was I'm like I can't watch this it's just too weird like and they were they were married so it was like I feel like I'm watching another like somewhat something that I shouldn't see because they're my friend and separation <laughs> of church and state so I feel very that. strange and another thing that um I think I mean and I could be wrong on this but with VR porn I feel that 
the adoption rate is a little bit slower just because most people don't have, I mean, anyone could purchase Google Cardboard and start watching VR porn. But obviously, you know, when you use Google Cardboard versus something like Oculus, totally different experience. Yes. So I feel that until more people have the right equipment, the technology just won't be adopted as quickly, which kind of brings me to teledildonic technology. I know that you've been fairly outspoken about that topic. So for guests who have no idea what that is, so Teletildonic technology essentially refers to um, being able to utilize uh, sex toys to connect over, uh, whether it be long distances via telecom networks, Wi-Fi, etc. A brief history on teledildonic technology for our audience. So believe it or not, uh, te- did you guys know that teledildonic technology dates back to 1974? That's wild. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't think we had enough tele for all that dildonic. So we really didn't. But, um, you know, we actually had technological theorist uh, Ted Nelson. He was the same guy who coined the term hypertext. He actually used the word dildonics to describe the sexualization of something that was called the sonic simulator. At the is, is this, I, I thought that was a prop from Doctor Who. It is a patented device that turns sound into a tactile sensation. That's awesome. I, I how tactile are we talking? I mean it makes sense. I mean sound is vibrations. Vibrations yeah. when amplified are tactile. I wanna know like I, I need to see this. I want I just need to know how this happens. Like what what's this seems like there's a gimmick. I just I wanna know what it is. <laughs> Well, there was another device, and this one I'm actually a little bit more curious how uh, how it looks. So in 1990, there was actually another tech te- theorist, um, Howard Rheingold, uh, that built upon Nelson's work uh, using the word teledildonics to describe sex toys that would eventually allow uh, users to connect over telecom networks over long distances. By the way, 1990, CERN didn't make the World Wide Web public until 91. But the w- toy that I'm thinking about, so there was a light sensing adapter that used the user's computer screen with a suction cup. It had an output for a sex sleeve or a vibrator that the companion could control remotely, adjusting their partner's screen brightness and color. Wow, that's really cool. Uh huh. Oh my. And then a few years later, Vivid, actually, uh, Vivid Entertainment, they came out with a neoprene suit that had 36 sensors and a number of sensations. Unfortunately, it failed to pass FTC standards. Huh. I wonder why. Yeah, I'm not totally certain on that. But I mean, I would imagine that, you know, I'd kind of want something to pass FTC standards before I'm strapping it to my junk. Yeah, for sure. That's a big concern with with a lot of these things. And now really where we are is, and maybe Ella, you know a little bit about this, but I know that as far as patents go, there's this company called TZU, Tzu Technologies. Um, They own the patent for a method and device for interactive virtual control of sexual aids using digital computer networks, which basically describes all of teledildonics. And they apparently tried to sue anyone who's attempting to send tactile sensations across the internet. So unfortunately, the tech is progressing a lot slower than it should. So yes, when I first started getting into uh, the live VR broadcasting, I was reaching out to a lot of different people who I found who had basically anyone I could find who seemed like they might be attached to some kind of webcam studio. And somehow in that research, I wound up talking to the guy who owns the patent or owned the patent or was very closely affiliated with the patent on teledildonics. And I'm someone who is generally, I'm very 
I don't want to say I'm opposed to patents. I see their value, but I also see how they can really restrict development and growth. So talking to him was really interesting. And the whole thing, the whole reason why he's very litigious when it comes to that patent is because, especially in the early days of something like that, if you make a device that is very poor quality, it's going to have a very drastic impact on the entire industry. So if the first big teledildonic device that reaches the zeitgeist is something that like snaps your junk in half or, or gives you, you know, burns or, or, or hurts you in some way, that's going to be a huge setback for everybody. So he was very concerned with maintaining uh, high quality experiences. And so that was sort of his deal. That patent, if it's the patent, I think it is the big teledildonics patent actually just expired within the past few weeks. So now we're almost certainly going to be seeing uh, a huge up, like an increase in, in the number of companies that are developing this kind of stuff. There are some companies that have developed teledildonic devices. One of the big ones is called Kiru, and uh, they have a couple of different generations of devices. They are very well used for connecting your device to the porn that you're watching, and they're are different ways that you can sync up what you're seeing on the screen with what the device is doing for you. There's also reciprocal devices across space. So if I've got a dildo and you've got the stroker sleeve, um, whatever I do to that dildo is reciprocated in your sleeve. And that's something that we also obviously are interested in using in live broadcasting in the adult space. And it's interesting when you mentioned the supersonic... Oh, um... The sonic... Uh, the, the sonic, sonic screwdriver. Stimu- the sonic stimulator? The Sonic Stimulator. So there's a company, before Teledildonics was really landing, there was, there's a company called Oh My Bod that basically you can connect your dildo to, to whatever music you're listening to and it'll, it will vibrate along with the music. So I actually did a photo shoot for them years and years ago, probably about six or seven years ago. And um, this was one of the early versions of their product. I plugged it, I directly like plugged it into a big stereo system I had and it would just vibrate right along with, with whatever music I was listening to. It was really cool. It turns out I don't really l- listen to a lot of music that is great for jerking off with, but it was really cool to, to see what they were doing and to see uh, and to know now that this is sort of the the root of that that invention. So yeah, teledildonics have have come a long way, but they're going to go so much farther. I think in the coming years now that it's you know kind of open season. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that the patent holder at the time was really concerned about quality, and I was thinking about this last night because. You know, the dream is to be able to go into a chat with a cam person and then pay them for them to stimulate you thousands of miles away. (laughs) That's a dream. But the reality is, especially with a lot of technology, is stuff fails. So I can imagine, you know, stuff failing to connect, troubleshooting, stuff not syncing, like they stopped jerking off and yet the machine's still going. Or there's always stuff like that. And I I can just or or latency. Latency? Yes. So the latency involved. If you're if you're on the other side of the world eventually there's going to be some latency introduced because one of the one of the factors that you have to take into consideration that you can't change and if you can change it you are going to make so much more money than just on jerk off toys and that's the speed of light that eventually there's an inhibition into the speed at which you can transmit data and all of this factors into sort of lower quality experiences to a degree. The closer you are to the person, the lower your latency is likely to be. I mean, it's, it depends on a lot of different factors. But but yeah, that's a thing. One of the things that we see is that there are these, these sex toys that um, there's this one that it's like a hot pink egg with a long string. And the string, I swear, it, it makes me think of like a 
a Lisa Frank tampon string, but it's a thing that cam performers will put inside of them and people can tip and it will vibrate that sex toy. And, you know, the performers pretend like this is just such an amazing erotic experience because obviously having some random vibration for five seconds in my vagina is so erotic for me personally. It's, it's weird, but it is something that sort of is that teledonatic thing. And also there are devices sort of like the, Oh, my bot I was just describing that um, react to sound. So, you have a certain noise associated with tipping on each site. Um, and many sites, you know, the bigger your tip, the louder or longer that sound is going to be. And so the more money you send the girl, the longer you're going to be vibrating her and the, you know, <laughs> I don't know, cooler you feel. That sounds pretty great. Um, although now I'm imagining, and I kind of mentioned this to Yvette last night. Um, so I'm looking forward to the customer service support for all of these toys. You know, can you imagine calling someone and, you know, you get a voice from someone who's clearly overseas that say, ma'am, have you tried turning the dildo off and on again? <laughs> that has, that has oh, to be someone's so job, though. for real. I, I hope it is, and I hope they are well compensated, and or that they're writing a book. Okay, you guys are joking about this, but I literally had that exact experience. <laughs> not, well, not someone overseas, but I, was, um, I had this dildo that I was testing out on a campsite that I was working with, and... It was, you know, I was working with someone. They were like, okay, um, I want you to just completely by yourself. I want you to hook up this thing and try to log in and use it and we'll see how it goes. And one of the issues was that the latency was huge. It was like, in some cases, over 20 seconds between the point where I'm supposed to, we're saying like, oh, her thing is vibrating and the vibration actually comes through. So that sort of dampens the experience. And there were several times in this process when I was troubleshooting it where I, they were like, well, turn it off and back on again, you know, just regular tech troubleshooting. So yeah, I did have to turn my dildo off and on again. And so it began. Real life. The robots, they control. I, for one, welcome our teledildonic robot overlords. But what's really interesting also is this technology is not only going to help people in long distances or people who want to participate via cam. I mean, there's so many opportunities. You know, if you have, let's say, a strange um, or interesting fetish or you want to explore a new fetish, this could be a way to do it. Maybe people hypothetically who have physical deformities, a way for them to have a sexual experience, you know, without physical limitations. Handicapped people who might be struggling with specific deformities or even just people struggling to find a partner. Yes, this is that is true for teledildonics, but it's also that is something that I was very strongly advocating with with live VR, you know, adult camming. That when we were going through that whole process of developing all of that, one of the big sort of loftier goals was to decrease loneliness because there are a lot of people who simply don't have access to romantic relationships, whether it's because of a disability or because they don't leave their house or they don't have the social skills or the comfort socially to connect with another person, or they work a lot, or there are many, many reasons why someone might just not have that opportunity. And loneliness has physiological impacts on, on your health. I mean, it is, I've read sub, some studies that indicate that chronic long-term loneliness can have a similar impact on your health as smoking cigarettes. And so allowing people an opportunity to feel to feel a sense of romance or reciprocal attraction or, or connection, romantic or sexual connection with another person can have a really positive impact on their lives. And that certainly holds true for, for VR, for teledildonics, for, for any of these things. One of the things that, that has come up with some teledildonic devices, so there are, for example, butt plugs that you can control with like a phone app 
or, uh, you know, it's like a Bluetooth kind of thing where you pair it on your phone. I heard from a friend that that's highly recommended. A friend. So they can be really cool. Yes. But they suffer from some of the same problems as any Internet of Things device in that without very, very, very well-monitored security. Specifically, uh, there's a device called Hush by Levens, and Levens is a cool uh, a cool company. I, I think they do some really cool stuff. But there's this motherboard article that came out about since it's a Bluetooth device and you can you can control it from anywhere and you can pair with it as long as you're in Bluetooth range. The problem is, at the time at least, they might have patched it, but at the time, anybody within Bluetooth range could pair with that butt plug and could control it. Oh no! So if you're using this butt plug and you're in a space where someone's looking around and they're like, oh, what's this? You could have your butthole hacked. Oh man. And so any device... That seems far less unpleasant than I would have thought from hearing those two, two <laughs> words the first time. Butthole ha- Oh. Yeah. It's, sorry you got your butthole hacked, bro. It's just, oof. It sounds sounds like sounds like a bad euphemism. It sounds like a best-selling porno. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, six? I mean, these are the things. Yeah, definitely part six, part seven. Oops, I hacked your butthole. I preferred part four. That was a classic, especially in the German translation, and I will not argue that. <laughs> Hell, you're gonna die on, huh? <laughs> so yeah, with with any device, any device that allows access into your home or your body, really, really strong security is very important and should be at the forefront of any development uh, efforts. So that's just some some fun info. I, for some reason, on my Wikipedia page, which is not very long, and I don't even know how it came about. I think it's cool that it's there. I have had nothing to do with it. But there's like a large section about me being outspoken on teledaldonics, and like, I don't give. I mean, I think it's cool. It's not something that I, you know, feel very very strongly about. I think it's very interesting. But but yeah, somehow like. Somewhere along the the way, this has been a thing where it's like, Ella Darling said this about teledildonics. And I'm like, guys, I say a lot of shit about a lot of shit. I don't know. Well, now it's we're fine. going to create, uh, make you an expert after this podcast. So, <laughs> Excellent. Um, so what was really interesting as well is um, I, I found an, I stumbled upon an article actually where someone mentioned that the possibility for teledildonics could also be used for prisoners in jail or sex offenders, as well as the reverse therapy for victims of sex crimes. What's the application for sex offenders? Well, could be potentially therapeutic treatment for those who've committed sex crimes. But also, I mean, there is a high instance of rape in prison that I'm aware of. So maybe this could be utilized to cut down on that. I mean, I know that as porn became more widely available, you know, instances of domestic violence across this country started cutting down. So, as well as sex, sex crimes. Yeah, when introduced into a community, the instances of sexual violence and sex crimes there does seem to be a correlation with that decreasing. That's really interesting. I mean, rape is fucking terrible. It doesn't matter if you're in prison; it's still really awful and not cool to joke about. And I think you know, anything that decreases rape is something that is. Uh, really valuable thing yeah and not only that but people you know who have experienced it you know being able to potentially utilize this technology as a form of therapy you know this could be valuable to those 
persons who maybe aren't ready to get physically intimate with another partner. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really great. Um, you mentioned sex robots. So, I mean, this is the closest I think that I mean that I saw as far as sex robots. I mean, I, I know that there. I'm sure that this could potentially be used to those. I don't want to say inflatable, but those really expensive, like fifteen to like forty thousand dollar machines that look and feel the like real people. dolls. The real is that what they're called? That's one brand. It's a brand name. It's like not every bandage is a band aid, but. Not every sex person thing is a real doll. I actually met some people. I had I went to a very interesting dinner party earlier this year, and there were two of the people who were very well known in the sex robot community. There was one woman who basically made a robot boyfriend, and there was a guy who is married to his... I don't know if she's a robot or if she's just a real doll, but he's got this... It's his partner. It's what he considers his partner. And I think... When we hear something like this, it's very easy with with any kind of sex thing that isn't what we find to be our typical expectation or, you know, something that is common in, you know, the people you tend to know. It's very easy to just look down on it and decide that it's, you know, terrible and it's going to end up with people not having sex anymore and nobody's going to like anyone, nobody's going to reproduce and it's going to be awful for everybody all over. And honestly, for me, if the number of guys who hit me up trying to fuck me and send me pictures of their dick or ask for emotional labor because they're lonely and they whatever and I don't know them and I don't owe them this and I just wish they would leave me alone. Like if the number of people out there who are burdening other people with their expectations could find a solution to that themselves with an inanimate object or a robot or whatever, that's great to me. Like, let the sex robots take over all the shit that I don't want to fucking deal with. I mean, they already, I mean, I feel that sex robots can definitely fill a need for quite a few people. I mean, there's so many people who want to change their partners and say, well, I can change him or I could change her to be exactly what I want them to be. I mean, that's a great thing with a sex robot. You can, I would assume, potentially do that. Or maybe in the future, we could do that if we can't already. So for all of those people, this would be perfect. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of applications for, for stuff like that. I think that there are a lot of People for whom that is going to be the exact right thing that just hits the spot for them in a way that that nothing else was ever going to. I've I've also heard, you know, some women very against it because they don't want to compete with a robot. And like, I don't consider a sex robot competition. I don't consider women competition. I I feel like if I have a, a romantic relationship with someone and a sexual relationship with them, then if they want to fuck a robot, then that's something we'll talk about. I mean, I kind of want to fuck a robot. I'll tell you right now, women are not going to be competing so much with the sex robots because it, the, fir- the first time it'll be great, then the guy or girl is going to have to clean it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Vaginas are self-cleaning. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. That oven is always on. <laughs> exactly. Well, also, like, I think that people, when they're seeking romantic partnership part of the appeal part of what you're you know part of the the whole experience is the risk that you're taking like at any moment you could be rejected at any moment they could say you know what nah i'm not into this and i think part of the reward is knowing that you had the risk of rejection and still you know reaching an end goal where you're both satisfied i think that's that's a big a big dopamine hit is when you're taking that risk talking to someone flirting with them even if they're your partner like initiating sex I mean they might not be into it right now they might just not feel like it and so every time that endeavor ends in a positive way that's 
that's a win, you know? That's a good point. Although there are times I look into the mirror and I reject myself. So, oh, I mean, babe. Partially. Um, so. <laughs> Alice, I know for a fact she has never turned herself down. Uh, you're right. I'm an easy leg for myself. Um, <laughs> but no, you're completely right. It, it is that, that actual connection that uh, you're right, that dopamine hit of actually, you know, I hope this person says yes. And, you know, that human connection, uh, an element that really does, you know, it's what makes relationships work, you know, whether I'll be at short term or long term. There's a brothel apparently that recently opened in Canada for for sex dolls. I don't know if I don't I don't know at which point a sex doll becomes a sex robot. Like if you put an Arduino in her and like a little servo that makes her eyes open and close, like the Arduino's a robot, is that now an entire sex robot? Like do we have to have something going on in the actual genital region or or like I don't know what Where's the line between robot yeah, and doll? But anyway, there is a brothel that apparently opened recently in Canada uh, where people can have sex with dolls. And I think that's very interesting. I don't really have a lot more to say about it. I hope that whoever's going there has a good time. I hope that the actual escorts in that area are not impacted by it. I kind of don't think they would be. Yvette Road Trip? I, you know, this is for, we could, this is a tax write-off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. We we might have to check this out just because I I think our I think our listeners are gonna need video content occasionally for our adventures into to the wild west of sex and find what we can in the field of sex where I'm just I'm fascinated that this is a that this is enough of a, a demand to have a sex robot brothel. That's that's kind of uh, fantastic. It's in Toronto uh, and it is a sex doll brothel. Um and it opens, it's set to open. Um, next month, this month, this month, apparently, September. Uh, and it's in a shopping mall. It's amazing. You know, you go pick up your orange Julius, you, you what? go grab your, your fucking, I don't know, what do people buy? Free panty oh. from Victoria's Secret? Yes. I don't there know. You Get yourself a sloth pretzel and head yeah. over to a place where you can fuck a robot. God bless Canada. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah. Ella, so this Thursday, you're going to be hosting the red carpet for an award show. Which one? It is the Pornhub Awards, the first annual Pornhub Awards. I will be speaking to everybody who walks that red carpet. So I do know that I will be interviewing a lot of really lovely porn performers, and it will be broadcast live in virtual reality on the Pornhub site. Uh, The company that I work for, PVR, pdr.fun uh, is actually the VR sponsor. So it is brought to you. The virtual reality live broadcast is brought to you by pvr.fun. And so that's sort of my involvement in it. You know, I obviously I'm, I was one of the pioneers in live broadcasting in VR, uh, especially in the adult space. So it makes sense that I will be hosting this live VR stream at the awards and I'm super excited. And I just got my dress yesterday. When you're on the red carpet, does the question, who are you wearing still apply? <laughs> Does it have the same meaning? Like on my body or in my hair right now? Because some of these people will probably be coming from set. Hey, you know, honestly, people like the award shows. If you ever look at the AVN award shows, for example, um, the different outfits that you see there, porn stars really fucking do it right. Like 
there have been sort of like BuzzFeedy style articles comparing like the Academy Awards dresses to the AVN Awards show dresses. And it's, I mean, it's steeped in internal internalized misogyny, implying that, you know, the actor, the actresses that actors and actresses that go to the mainstream awards dress totally slutty. Oh my God. And the porn stars dress totally classy. Like how, how could they even like, they're not just laying down being fucked all the time. How do they even know how to be classy? It's all really dumb. It's a lot of let's pit women against each other for arbitrary definitions of what makes someone uh, socially not perceived as as a, a yeah. scorned woman or a, a, a horrible wanton slut. And it's all super fucking classist, but it is something that is, I think, really cool is that everybody has some preconceived idea of who porn stars are, what they're like, and all of these things. And I think that when you look at the way that porn stars dress at red carpets, like there's some really, really beautiful gowns. There's some really beautiful styling. Like it, it actually is something that I'm really psyched about. I got to host the red carpet at the Expiz Awards in Miami a couple years ago. And um, one of my favorite things was just we're all so excited to be there. I'm so excited to see everybody. I'm excited that they're here to be honored and recognized. And it's just, it's, it's like porno prom. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Actually. So, uh, for porno prom this year, I, uh, I looked and I noticed that Pornhub, I believe actually a lot of the people who are nominated and the awards, how they're going to be distributed is based on actually really interesting the metrics that people use on, you know, what they're actually viewing. I'm really fascinated to see who wins what, because it's kind of like the People's Choice Awards. Yeah, it is to a degree. I think most adult film shows do have a voting uh, a voting platform where the the viewers can vote. But this one is very, very much more oriented to not just the people who are willing to go out of their way to go to a, a website and cast a vote. This is, you know, the actual viewing habits. And I think that's a really interesting way to do it. So I know in the past, um, you've definitely asked some fun questions as well as had some fun hashtags for when you've been on the red carpet. So our listeners, you've asked in the past, porn stars, uh, if you could have sex with any fictional character, who would it be? What are you asking this year? I don't know yet. I am going to ask, for sure, I'm going to ask people, you know, what are you most proud of in your career this year? Because I think that there are so many people that come to the award show that might not be nominated at that time or that at that particular show that I don't want it to seem like, oh, your only value is if you're up for an award and otherwise get the fuck out of here. Because everybody there is part of an industry where they're putting so much of themselves forward. They're doing so much like being a porn. Like you don't just show up on set, have sex and leave. And then cool. now you have a living. Like you have to be very industrious. The fact is in the industry these days, there's just not enough work often enough to be able to shoot and do nothing else all the time, full time. There are a couple of performers certainly who can do that, but even the ones who are cast all the time in, you know, by all the companies, they still do a lot of, you know, outside marketing. They run websites, they shoot video content, they edit video content, they sometimes do podcasts, they run fan clubs, they, you know, manage content over several different platforms. And everything they do is is so geared towards maintaining their brand. And I just want people to be able to have the opportunity to, you know, talk about like to reflect on on what they've done this year and talk about the things that they, you know, are most excited about and feel proud of and and just give them a chance to sort of shine in that way. Now it depends because 
since this is live streamed, you know, every other time I've interviewed people, it's been something that could be edited in post. So since it's live stream, I kind of have to keep things moving. So some people I might have the chance to ask a few questions and some I might have to just kind of snap through. But but yeah, I'll ask about their outfit if it's something exciting. I'll ask, you know, maybe their favorite performers to work with. Or if they're not a porn performer, I might ask them what who their favorite porn star is or what kind of content they like. I wonder if it would be worthwhile and just throwing this out, considering how everyone's so politically charged now. If, if it would be worthwhile asking, hey, so what political issues do you care about? That could be really cool. Porn stars giving their opinion on platforms and issues they care about. I mean, they don't ask that shit at the Academy Awards. That's a good point that I have to make sure that I won't get in trouble for asking that. But that, you know, just what are some issues in the world or in your world that you are that you care about or you're invested in i think that could be really good i also you know there's a lot going on politically in porn and sex work pretty much all the time i think that could be a really good opportunity to show the fans who are watching this that the performers that they love have like really important causes that you should know about because if you want us to be able to keep making you content you know you should know about the laws that might prevent that and you know one of the things i'm going to ask is what do you wish your fans knew like what do you wish viewers would know about porn or what it's like to be a porn star. And I think that will give people a big opportunity to disclose their thoughts and ideas in a way that I think that we're not frequently given the platform to do. What if you could leave people from listening to this podcast with one misconception that you hear a lot, uh, just get rid of that misconception entirely, what would it be? Okay, so there's this idea that if you do porn, you are a victim of trafficking or that all sex work has like a really big problem with trafficking and it's simply not the case there's so little work to go around right now and so many willing participants that there is no need to force someone to do porn because first of all if you're forcing someone to do a porn scene it's not going to the chemistry is going to suck it's not going to be a good scene it's not going to be fun they're not going to like it's it's just not good content like solely from a product position you're not going to make a good product especially when you've got so many other performers who are like so willing and able and excited to come to set and shoot whatever scenes you're shooting like this is just simply simply not the case um there's this idea about you know creating ethical porn and i think ethical anything is great but that sort of innately implies that most porn isn't ethical and i think that's not the case i think just like with any industry there are definitely some companies that you know could stand to do better and there are always going to be assholes no matter where you're at but for the most part porn is a pretty consistent and pretty ethical and safe place to be. More and more women are running companies, running sets, directing. It's so much more female driven than I think people realize. We don't need to be rescued. Oh my god, every porn star has a story, uh, probably every sex worker has a story about someone who sees that they're doing this job and wants to save them from it. And almost always the way that they want to save us from it is just like, oh, I'll, I'll hire you at my warehouse. You could have a, an honest living. And it's like, cool, let me come make minimum wage at your warehouse instead of doing this thing that I love that pays me a lot of money and gives me a lot of free time and a lot of creative freedom. Like, no. And I would say the... the that way you'll be getting an income that they approve exactly. of. Exactly. And the biggest... You'll be on food stamps, but they'll approve of you morally. But I won't be a whore. But um, <laughs> the biggest problem like the biggest downside of being a performer I mean from my perspective isn't the porn industry at all 
it's the rest of the fucking world. It's the fact that when we decide we don't want to do porn anymore, it's very hard to get a job. It's very hard to find a career. I gave a talk earlier this year and I highlighted just 10 different performers who had done porn, in most cases, years or more than a decade before, and usually for a pretty short amount of time. So it's not like they're, you know, they've been in it. For, I mean, it doesn't matter, but where they found a new career and they were fired from it because it was discovered that they had done porn before. There was even a case of a young man who was working at Subway and he had done gay porn and he was fired from Subway because he had done porn. Like we can't even make a fucking sandwich for civilians if we've done porn before. And it does it, like while we're doing porn, a year after doing porn, 10 years after doing porn, it's trying to integrate back into normal work that is really hard and can make you incredibly depressed when you are just honestly just fucking over it and just tired of tired of it and you just don't want to go and be sexy anymore you want to you know eat some fucking donuts and grow out your bush in a really like non-fetish way like when you're just kind of done and you want to break it can be really hard to be able to take a break because it can be really difficult to find work that you know is accessible that isn't going to leave us in constant fear that, you know, our entire livelihood is going to end tomorrow because some fucking coworker saw that I did porn. Like, who cares? You're obviously watching it. Most people watch it. Everybody pretty much is here because somebody else fucked. So let's get the hell over that. This puritanical country getting over something about sex. Are you new? I know. <laughs> ridiculous. Um, no, we can't be adults about it. But yeah, like, we choose this job because it is what fits for us in life. I can't have a bad day at work. Like if I'm a performer, I'm not allowed to have a bad day at work. Like I can't come home and be like, man, I had a shitty day. You know, the director was kind of an asshole. My scene partner, like I just wasn't into them. Like, you know, I can't have that because as soon as I say anything critical, people who oppose porn will seize on that and use that. We'll literally print our words and use it in legal Oh God, fucking Cal OSHA. Um, the there are a bunch of hearings with Cal, Cal OSHA that we're still going through because there's this big organization that's really really shitty, and um, they will literally print out our tweets where we talk about, oh man, today kind of sucked because of this thing to prove that we are not, you know, people acting with agency that we're somehow forced to be in this job, and it's just not the case. There are entire organizations. Everyone has a bad day at the office. Yeah, but. When when I went to my high school reunion, I was talking to this guy and he was telling me about how much he hated his job. He he worked in truck driving and his boss is an asshole and his feet are getting all fucked up because he's on his feet too much. Like his health is suffering. He doesn't see his family that much, but it's good money. So he does it. And I'm like, dude, if I talked that way about my job, there are organizations that exist to rescue me from it. I just, I don't have that opportunity. Like, let me just have, let me just have a fucking job. Let me like it sometimes and not like it sometimes and just. Well, I'm glad that we're doing this. You know, I keep calling it a porn cast because frankly, we want to normalize a lot of these topics because they shouldn't be taboo at all. You know, your job shouldn't be taboo because everyone participates in it in one way or another. Like 90% of people admit to using porn and the other 10% lie about it, I think. It's a legal job. It's a legal profession that we pay taxes on that we, that is largely self-regulated that we it's it's legal work like get the fuck over it so ella aside from working with pvr with gonzo vr on the horizon is there anything first off you'd want else you want to promote i want to talk a little bit about the pvr headset yeah absolutely 
So PVR is a company that I just joined recently. They hired me as their chief marketing officer and they make a VR headset just for adult content. And they made something that is very, very high quality. It's very lightweight. It's in fact, even more lightweight than most of the regular like mainstream headsets on the market. And so you can wear it for a longer period of time without having discomfort on your face which is very nice. Um, and it's basically streamlined to be very easy to use. So you get your headset, you connect it to Wi-Fi, you register it on the pvr.fun website. And whenever you buy new content or whenever you get new content through your initial free subscription, it just pushes it straight to your headset and you get to decide like, these are the things I want on the headset and it'll just handle it for you. And so it's very easy to use. You don't have to be tech savvy. You don't have to know really anything about virtual reality. It's a very, very simple easy headset to use. And for a while, I was kind of skeptical about adult headsets. Like, why why would I want an adult headset when I have a regular headset? And then I realized, you know, I have guests over a lot, and I love to show them virtual reality on my computer. And the last thing I want is for someone to put on a headset and see, oh, wow, the porn that I was just watching, or to grab the headset and, like, there's lube or humors on it. Or to bring my my portable headset to, you know, to show my grandma cool VR stuff because she's super into it. The last thing I want to do is give her something that I've been using when I've been jerking off. So I think there's very much a strong value offering and having a separate headset just for your private moments. And that's what the P stands for in PVR. It's private VR. And yeah, it's it's something that the more I've, I've had it, the more I've used it, the more I love it. And I liked it so much that I decided to join their company. So if you're interested in VR porn, I highly recommend this headset. It's really cool. And it comes with a free subscription for a year on the site. So you'll get some free VR porn just when you buy it. Ella, tell our listeners where they can find you. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at E-L-A Darling, Ella Darling. If you go to pvr.fun, you will see my face plastered all over that site, depending on when you go. And, uh... If you just follow me on Twitter, you'll be made aware of any new developments in VR, in the new Gonzo VR platform that I'm creating, any new cool shit with PVR, you'll you'll find everything you need to know. Awesome. So, Yvette, final thoughts? Final thoughts. Um, let's see, I've checked out the VR porn. It was uh, on a smallish headset. It was so much fun. If this is something that you're curious about, even if you don't have a lot of money for one of the more expensive headsets, there are some fairly affordable ones that I found on Amazon go check this out. If it's, you're going to have fun with it. Awesome. And Yvette, where can our listeners find you? Oh, um, at scibabe.com, facebook.com slash the, or slash scibabe, and at Instagram and Twitter at at the scibabe. And you could find me, Alice, at Rational Blonde on Twitter. And thank you listeners for tuning in. And you can also support us on Patreon at Two Girls, One Mike, as well as you could find us and the rest of our podcasts on iTunes, as well as at Google Play. And we do have a website, twogirlsonemikepodcast.com. We will see you soon. 